Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's episode is from Pastor Mark Santum, Neil Ellison, and Chris Greenwood. Well, as you have you just heard, the Protestant Reformation at its heart was a reformation of the church and a spiritual and theological awakening to the truth of God's word. And to be sure, a reformation like this or any kind of awakening never happens in a vacuum. It just doesn't happen accidentally. Instead, there are real things happening in real history and real culture in the hearts and minds of real people. So besides St. Augustine, with who without question is the theological forerunner and forefather of the Reformation centuries earlier, there are several people who serve as forerunners. If you've been here this month, we've been talking a lot about forerunners. People uh, to people like Martin Luther, William Tyndale, John Calvin, Aldrich Zwingli. And today, this morning, uh, I'm gonna take a look with you at two in particular, John Wycliffe and a man named Jan Hus. But there, again, there is a historical context. What is going on in the life of the, the world and the church that is making these men realize that there's a need for reformation? Well, the historical context in general is this. It's that it was the declining state of the Roman Catholic Church which like uh, R.C. Sproul said in the video, was more like an empire. And so this is oversimplifying it, but here are five characteristics of the church that were present before the Reformation. Number one, the church had incredible wealth. They were wealthier than much of the royalty around two. They had vast amounts of power, both spiritual and political. Thirdly, there's widespread immorality, uh, the, the abuse of money, sex, and power. Simony and nepotism, that is the giving and selling of church offices. And finally, indulgences, that's the selling of forgiveness and uh, selling of the freedom from friends who have died and are in purgatory. Now, the church wasn't all that bad, but we are emphasizing for the purpose today all of the abuses that were prevalent. So, in the year 1330, in a small village in England, a man by the name of John Wycliffe was born. Little did anyone know at the time that John Wycliffe would one day be known as the Morning Star of the Reformation since he lived about 150 years before Martin Luther. When he was only 16 years old, 16 years old, mind you, he left for Oxford University to study science, math, in theology, but because of the periodic eruptions of the Black Death back in the time, he did not earn his doctorate until he was 42. Crazy, isn't it? Nonetheless, by then he is already considered one of Oxford's leading theologians and biblical scholars. When John turned 44, he became the rector of the parish in Luterworth, England, which would later become the epicenter for church discontent. Why all the discontent? Well. There were many reasons, but one reason was the church in Rome demanded more and more financial support from England, which is already struggling financially because they were saving up, anticipating a war with the French. Wycliffe, who was also a patriot, he argued that Christ called his followers to live a life of simplicity and service, not to exuberant wealth that the church seemed to enjoy all too much. So you know what he did? He refused to pay. He refused to pay his taxes, and that his rebellion caught the attention of many others. And this, for John Wycliffe, was just the beginning. Wycliffe became more and more outspoken against the Pope and other church authorities for their greed, their, their moral corruption, and their insistence that the Word of God held very little sway in the life of the church. For his rebellious stance, he was brought to London charged with 18 counts of heresy, and he was labeled the master of errors. 
1382, after he publicly referred to the Pope as the Antichrist, all right, if you want to win friends and influence people, you shouldn't, that shouldn't be your opening line. <laughs> He was expelled after that from Oxford University where he was teaching. Now having plenty of time on his hands, Wycliffe, with the help of his good friend, was able to accomplish what he's probably known best for, and that is the first translation of the Bible into the English language uh, from, the French, from the Latin. Everything, all of the sermons, they were always preached in Latin. And the problem was, hardly anyone could speak Latin. And so he believed in what would later be called the priesthood of all believers. Part of that notion was that followers of Jesus had the right to read the scriptures for themselves and did not need a priest to interpret it for them. So as you can see here, that uh, a lot of you recognize that uh, emblem off on the right-hand side. This is Wycliffe Bible Translators. This is named after John Wycliffe and tremendous organization. Today, most notably, they have translated the New Testament into 1,442 languages. The, the legacy lives on. In fact, to show how thoroughly Wycliffe messed with the status quo of the church, um, what happened was 50 years after he died, the Roman Catholic authorities dug up his remains, they burned them and scattered them in the River Swift in order to make a dramatic point. Imagine living a life that was so impactful that 50 years after you died, they exhumed your bones and made a spectacle, right? Finally, the life and courage of John Wycliffe would go on to affect the life and purpose of a poor bohemian peasant by the name of Jan Hus, who was only 15 years old when John Wycliffe passed away. Jan Hus, who was born in what is now modern-day Czech Republic, he was born in 1370. To escape poverty, Hus trained for the priesthood, even though he had no interest in spiritual things. He, quoted by, he was quoted by saying this, I had thought to become a priest quickly in order to, to secure a good livelihood and dress and to be held in high esteem by all men. That is not a good uh, motivation to go into ministry. He earned his bachelor's degree at the University of Prague, where his spiritual interests seemed to blossom. And then he earned his master's and finally his doctorate. Along the way, he was ordained and became the preacher at Prague's Bethlehem Chapel, which seated 3,000 people, the most popular church in one of Europe's most uh, popular cities. In that time, the Roman Catholic Church owned more than half of the land of Bohemia, and the clergy was putting a huge tax burden on the common folks, and this would affect Huss deeply. During this time, Huss made a tremendous discovery. He discovered the scriptures, and no longer wanted to be in the ministry for money and comfort, but rather for the transformation that was brought about by the gospel of Jesus. Huss once said, I desire to hold, believe, and assert whatever is contained in the scriptures as long as I have breath in me. Therefore, he began to preach his sermons in Czech, not in Latin, so that all of the common folks would understand the gospel as well. It is about that time that he also discovered something else, the life and message of a deceased man named John Wycliffe, who espoused the truth of the Bible and railed against the abuses of the church. He wrote, Wycliffe, 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 you will turn many heads. And indeed he did. Emboldened by the word of God, the suffering of his parishioners, and the forerunning example of John Wycliffe, Huss began to boldly speak out against the clerical sin of the church and its luxurious living. Huss once said, clothed in these rags, I weep while the priests go about in scarlet. I suffer agony greatly in the sweat of blood while they take delight in their luxurious bathing. He argued that Christ alone is the head of the church, that a pope 
but through ignorance and love of money can make many mistakes, and that to rebel against an erring pope is to obey a holy Christ. Therefore, he was, he was forbidden to preach. He was excommunicated. But with local Bohemians backing him, he continued to preach and minister at Bethlehem Chapel. In order to put Huss in his place, you know what they did? One particular archbishop gathered more than 200 pieces of his hero, John Wycliffe, and took his writing and they had him burned in the palace courtyard outside of the chapel. On November, in November 1414, the Council of Constance assembled. Uh, there's a picture of it on the screen. And Huss was urged by the Roman emperor himself to give account for his doctrine. Because he was promised safe conduct, he came. But they went against the reward. When he arrived, he was arrested and remained in prison for months and was asked to recant his perceived 39 heretical beliefs. Huss said that he would recant only if his errors could be proved by scripture. Of course, they couldn't, and he never recanted. As a result, on July 6, 1415, he was taken to the cathedral, dressed in his priestly garments as a way to mock him. They tied him to a stake to be burned. Huss's accuser said, O cursed Judas, we take away from you the cup of redemption. We commit your soul to the devil, is what they told him. Huss refused one last chance to recant, and instead he prayed, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. And he was hearing, and he was heard reciting the Psalms as the flames engulfed him. Huss, uh, and when you think of Huss's legacy, there arose a generation of loyal followers after him called the Hussites, who were committed to preaching the gospel, sharing the word of God, and holding sinners to account, which led to another generation of followers called the Moravians, who were a spirit-filled group dedicated to spreading the gospel around the world. And one last thing, 100 years after Huss's death, a humble Augustinian monk from Germany heard about Huss's legacy, courage, and influence, and inspired him to go and do thou likewise. That monk's name, Martin Luther. The motto of the Reformation was post tenebrae lux, which means out of darkness light. What that means is, and what they understood that to mean, was that with the decline of the church and the pulling away from Christian values and pulling away from the scripture and, and pulling away from the understanding of the early church, that this darkness was overwhelming not only the church but the world. And so their desire was not to bring about a revolution, but rather to bring about a reformation. Those involved supported the church, but they wanted, like the early prophets of the Old Testament, to call the church back to its foundation, to call it back to its roots, to call it back to the scriptures. And this was an important distinction for them, uh, because their desire was actually to reform the church in the very best for all involved. The central figure of the Reformation, uh, as we acknowledge, is Martin Luther. He was born on November 10th, uh, 1483. His parents were peasant farmers. Now for an understanding of this age that Luther lived in, uh, at the age of nine years old, nine years of age, uh, Christopher Columbus discovered America. 
And it's amazing to think in terms of the context and all the changes and the things that were happening in the world uh, during this time. And eventually his father left farming uh, to work in the mines. And because of his administrative and entrepreneurial skills, his father advanced quickly and ended up owning seven foundries and became a very wealthy man. Luther's father uh, had a great desire. His greatest desire was that Martin would become a prominent lawyer so that he could support his parents in their old age. Uh, Anybody heard that before? I think so. But uh, Luther was brilliant, and uh, when he went through his education, his basic education, he actually earned two bachelor degrees in four years. And then he, um, according to his father's wishes, enrolled in law school. Uh, He was very well educated, and uh, he also became fluent in Latin. Understand that everyone who went to the university at that time were required to learn Latin. If you wanted to be a doctor, if you wanted to be a lawyer, if you wanted to be a theologian or a scholar, you had to learn uh, Latin because all your studies were in Latin, you were taught in Latin, you conversed with one another in Latin, your books were in Latin. Everybody who was educated was expected to know and use Latin. Uh, Actually, Luther became uh, a very famous or well-known linguist. But what happened to him was is that one day he was returning to his home from from the university, and as he was going down the road, all of a sudden uh, there was a, a sudden storm, violent storm that came up, and lightning struck the ground near him, and he was knocked to the ground. And that was so traumatic, he cried out at that time, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk. Now, why St. Anne? Well, St. Anne happened to be the patron saint of all minors. So as a child growing up in his father's home, he was taught to pray to St. Anne. So that was his um, cry to St. Anne and his vow that he would become a monk. So unbeknownst to his father initially, uh, he went to the monastery, uh, prostrated himself uh, as he came in the front door and asked to be taken into the monastery uh, and to become a a monk. And through his studies then, what happened was is that uh, he became a, a student of the Bible. As Mark related, many of the monks at that time hardly read the Bible at all. They read commentaries or other things, but what happened was is that uh, there wasn't a a focus on the Word. And of course, people uh, who couldn't read Latin, they had little or no contact with the Bible as well. At one point, Luther, because of his uh, great intelligence, uh, uh, he was also a, a student of the law. He was actually sent by the monastery uh, to Rome uh, to argue a case there. And it was there, as Mark again uh, related, that he discovered how corrupt uh, the, the clergy were, the, the people in Rome. Uh, the, the monks would perform um, the Eucharist they would 
serve communion and they got paid by the number of times that they served communion. So they would perform as many as 20 services in an hour's time just to get money uh, as a part of that. And there was a lot of debauchery that went on. And in fact, what happened was um, Pope Leo X was one of the Medici's. If you know anything about Italian history, this was a family that was very corrupt, very powerful uh, during that time. And uh, literally these positions of high uh, places in the church were purchased by the family. But he went to Rome and this was a, a journey of 1200 miles. He had to walk on, you know, on foot and then uh, return after that. So that was a, a crisis in his life become, because he became very uh, disillusioned. And then what happened, uh, another point in his life, five years later, was he was studying, and uh, the great struggle for Luther was, as he says, I, you know, he says, I can't live up to God's law as a student and, and a background and training uh, in law uh, as he had, uh, he understand in looking at scripture, uh, the demands that were placed upon him. And while his other monks in the monastery would go each day to confess uh, their sins, they would maybe go five, 10 minutes, something like that. Uh, Luther would go, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours. And he kept confessing his sins because he was so fearful that if he were to die, he would, he would go to hell because he hadn't obtained enough righteousness. The doctrine of the church at that time was is that in order to be saved, you had to be made righteous. You had to be perfect before God would accept you or extend grace to you to save you. And Luther knew this, and he was just uh, petrified for fear that something would happen to him. Uh, of course, the other part of the doctrine was is that if you had unconfessed sin, then you went to purgatory. Well, the thing of it is, most of us don't realize is that they actually believe that purgatory could last as long as a million years. And so how do you ever work or how do you ever get out of purgatory? And of course, this was uh, very fearful to Luther. But so what he did was, is that as he was studying here, he was given the opportunity to preach, uh, to, to teach uh, the book of Psalms, and then the book of Romans, and then the book of Galatians. And when he was studying and working on the uh, book of Romans, he came across this verse from Romans 1, 16 to 17. Uh, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so when it says faith to faith, it says from the beginning to the end, we are called to live by faith. 
And the understanding of the church at the time was because they were using the Latin Vulgate, the word justification was literally trans, uh, was translated from the old Roman uh, legal system. It was translated as the righteousness here is uh, uh, given, is not given, but you are made righteous. So the way the church interpreted that was in order to be saved, the way you gained righteousness was through baptism, and then you had to go and confess before a priest and get absolution, and then from there, uh, you would take the Eucharist, and because they believed it was the literal blood and body of Christ, you were infused with righteousness. But what Luther came to understand was no, that he went back and studied the Greek, And when he looked at the Greek, he found out what it was really saying was, is that you are declared righteous, that righteousness is imputed to you, and it is not our righteousness, but is the righteousness of Christ. And that just opened up the heavens to Luther. It just relieved all his fear and anxiety, and this turned his life upside down at that point in time. Well... Later, of course, we see that uh, uh, there was a problem with these indulgences. And what happened was, is Pope Leo X authorized indulgences uh, for uh, people. And what happened was, is the idea was, is that if you gave money to the church, then you could receive one of these indulgences from the Pope. And literally, all the years you spent in purgatory for a loved one could be wiped away. And so basically, uh, as long as you were paying money, then you could uh, be set free, or your loved one could be set free. And so there was a man here by the name of uh, Tetzel, who was the uh, Pope's Uh, advocate here, and he would go around. It was his job to go into these communities and convince these people to buy indulgences. And uh, there was a phrase that he used, uh, translated into English. It said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And, and, uh, you know, Luther just was so incensed by that. So Luther, what he did then, of course, was is that uh, he went and he made out his uh, list of uh, uh, 95 uh, theses, and uh, he wasn't trying to challenge the Pope or do anything uh, uh, as far as that's concerned, but he wanted to be able to debate it with the scholars. And so he went to the church, and the church was like the community bulletin board. And so any issue or anything that you wanted to debate, you put it on the community bulletin board, which was the, the front door. And so that was nailed uh, to the front door. The other thing was, it was in Latin. The people in the, in the town, they had no idea what he was saying, but he was trying to speak to the scholars and to the people in the university here to challenge this in the, a matter of debate. But what happened was, you know how university students are, right? You know the things they can get into? Well, the university students read this, and what they did was is they copied them, and then they quickly, the, the printing press, uh, the Gutenberg printing press had just been uh, uh, introduced into the uh, community. They went and copied just thousands of leaflets with these 
um, uh, and they translate them, uh, you know, these, these uh, challenges that Luther made. And within a short period of time, these leaflets were in every community, practically, in Germany. And so the fire was starting here at this point. This came to the Pope, and initially his reaction was, oh, this is just some drunken monk in Germany. He, uh, this, this is all going to go away. Well, it didn't go away at this point. And what happened was is that Luther ended up with... Um, uh, Luther ended up with three trials that he had to go through. And uh, he wanted it as an opportunity to uh, debate these issues uh, with the leaders of the church. But instead what happened, and particularly in the end, uh, in the Diet of Worms, which is the assembly, the name of the assembly, uh, what basically happened was is each time he was told to, reca uh, to um, for all his works, to renounce all his writings. And he wasn't going to do that. And he said, you know, I've written some good things. Not everything's contentious here. But they said, no, you have to uh, renounce everything. And uh, so anyway, he asked for 24 hours uh, in order to speak. And this was his prayer. He says, oh, God, almighty God, everlasting. How dreadful is this world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up. How small is my faith in thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. The nail is struck. Sentence has gone forth. O oh God, O oh God, O oh thou my God, help me against all the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beseech thee. Thou shouldst do this by thy own power, for the work is not mine, but thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace, but the cause is thine, and it is righteous and everlasting. Lord, help me. O, faithfully uh, o faithful, unchangeable God, I lean not upon men. It would be vain. Whatever is of man is tottering. Whatever proceeds from him must fall. My God, my God, don't you hear me? Are you no longer living? No, you cannot die. You doth but hide thyself. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, God, accomplish your own will. Forsake me not for the sake of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my bulwark, and my stronghold. Lord, where are you? My God, where are you? Come, I pray, I am ready. Behold me prepared to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb. For the cause is holy, it is your cause. I will not let you go, uh, no, nor yet for all eternity. And though the world should be uh, thronged with devils, and this body, which is the work of thine hands, should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, cut to pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is thine, and I have your own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to you and will abide with thee forever. Amen. O oh God, send help. Amen. So he appeared the next day before the, uh, the, the assembly of the church leaders and people, 
And the townspeople were for, were for him when he came into that meeting. They were on, lined up on the roads cheering for him. He was famous. He was a superhero at that point. But when he came in there at that point in time, again, they asked him to recount uh, all that he had written. And he answered, he said, Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant for my con- conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. At that point, the entire assembly just stood up and yelled in confusion, and he was rushed out, and it was certain that he was going to be killed. He was declared a heretic at that point in time. But what happened was is that he had some friends who staged a fake kidnapping. And they got him out of there and they hit him and there was a very powerful political uh, uh, individual who protected him his entire life and the Pope was never able to touch him at that point in time. And that's why he did all the work and that's where the further work of the uh, Reformation uh, came from. I'll let Chris, uh, Chris come and talk about that. So what? <laughs> right? I mean, Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, nails, hammers, theses, treasons, trials. So what? Who cares, right? I mean, it's 2017, right? Well, that's my question to answer. I mean, how in the world is this relevant? to us here in 2017. I mean, I have iPhones. My cars are beginning to drive by themselves. I can, you know, talk to anyone in the world I want to on video uh, conferencing. What does this have to do with me? What is, what is the whole point of the Reformation? Well, I'd like to summarize it with just a couple of quick things for you guys to, to kind of bring it home and give you some application points. How has the Reformation impacted your life 500 years later? We've covered some of these very things. First and foremost, the fact that you can use that iPhone, the fact that you can look in front of you at the pew, or maybe hold in your, your uh, hands right now a Bible in your own language is an, is an effect of the Reformation. And if for us in the Western world, the fact that you don't have just one English translation, but a whole bunch to choose from has to do with the Reformation. So the availability of the Scriptures is for you. The authority of the Scripture, as important as church tradition is, as important as the councils were, as important as it is to have good leaders in the church, nothing is as important as the Scriptures themselves, because only the Scriptures give us a solid foundation that we can build our entire lives upon, and that's what the Reformers fought for. Secondly, we have the uh, priesthood of the believer. Mark mentioned this one. Uh, a different angle on the priesthood of the believer is the fact that you don't need anyone to intercede for you except Jesus. You have immediate and total access to the Father. Just like me, just like any clergy person does, you don't have to wait for a clergy person to pray for you or anything like that. You can go right into the throne room of grace, crawl up into your daddy's lap and tell him anything you want to because of what Christ has accomplished for you. That's the priesthood of the believer. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. Thirdly, the, uh, the idea that there's a divine call. This, is, this was actually one may surprise you. There's a divine call of an occupation for every person's life. 
This idea that there's the sacred and the secular and that God is only interested in the sacred calls of being a priest or a missionary or a Bible scholar of some sort is completely not true, and the Reformers rejected that wholeheartedly. They believed that God had a divine call for every person and every person's vocation. Did you know that? Did you know that God calls people to be electricians? That God calls people to be garbage collectors and repair people and car mechanics and lawyers and doctors and dentists? He calls you into a vocation. And one of the things that is in my wife's testimony is that she had never thought about that until college when she heard our campus minister say, have you ever (laughs) asked God what he wants you to do with your life? Because he has a plan for every one of us, not just to make known the mystery of the gospel and disciple people. That's a given for everybody in the entire world that knows Jesus. But how can you do that in your occupation? That's a big part of the Reformation. And because of that, the fourth point is that the Reformers didn't invent university systems. They didn't invent school, but they supported it in a new way because they believed if you're going to fulfill a divine call, you have to be trained to do that. So they believed in education for all people. If you're going to be a lawyer, you need to know how to do that. If you're going to be a car mechanic, then you need to know how to do that. Not so you can fulfill some kind of... uh, you know, white house with a little white picket fence, 2.3 children and a dog, and live a nice, comfortable life, but so that you can use your occupation to make known the wonder of Jesus, and you can bear, use it as a testimony to the world. So that's why they believed in a divine call and a divine education to go along with that call. But there's five essential statements that came out of the Reformation. You may have heard them called the five solas before. And one way to remember this is it's, it could be referred to as the sola power of the Reformation. That's just such a, that's just, I've been waiting to say that all week. So you guys didn't even get that, the sola power. See what I did there instead of solar power? That's so great. So you remember that. So there's five things there. Scott, you appreciated that, didn't you? There you go, Scott. All right. <laughs> sola power. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and sola de gloria. Okay? Faith alone, or grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. These five essential statements were the hallmark of the Reformation, and they're what we still fight for and preserve today in the church. For indeed, the Reformation reminded the church of its day that it is by grace alone that we are saved, and not through works, lest anyone should boast. And as we receive the grace that's extended to us, we must place our faith in the author of that grace. For it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And who is that author? It's none other than Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. For there is none like him, no one that can offer the full pardon and cleansing of our sins. He stands alone in all of human history as the mighty king and the merciful savior. He is the embodiment of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And his story is contained and lives on forever in the scriptures. There is no other work that compares to the timeless and living lines of God's word. They're true, consistent, and firm, and final. They offer the solid foundation on which to build the houses of our lives, and it offers its Christ. As it does so, it tells us 
reminds us and returns us over and over and over again to all that we were, all that we are, and all that we will one day be. All that we do, all that we accomplish, and all that we offer is all to be done for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. For to Him be all the glory and the honor and the power and the majesty and the praise forever and ever and ever. Amen. That is the hallmark of the Reformation. So it's the sola power of the Reformation. It's what the Reformers fought for you to have, died for you to have, dreamed that you would one day have and know. And that's why what happened 500 years ago matters. It's more than history. It's our story. It's our heritage. It's our legacy. And so now, how are you stewarding it? How are you holding tight and staying vigilant to this beautiful gift of the Reformation? Are you guarding against the false gospels and the false teachings? They didn't just end 500 years ago. It's a constant threat against the the wonderful truth of the gospel. Will you defend the five solas so that others might have a chance to know what you know? Will you defend that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as contained in the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone? Or will you let the foxes into the vineyard to destroy the gospel? Because see, here's the thing, and here's where we can just have a little introspection moment. Would you even know what the foxes look like if they tried? (laughs) Recently, I just learned, much to my dismay, that across the board in America, only 10% of Christians have ever read the entire Bible. Just 10%, just let that sit in for a minute. Now, I know some of you are sitting there going, well, yeah, that's good, I hadn't read it either. I get, okay, so here's, that's the reality, right? Not to say that reading the Bible makes you a super Christian. Don't hear me say that. At the same time, knowing the full story is important. It's very, very important that from Genesis to Revelation, we understand the heartbeat of God. And so if you've never read the entire scriptures, and I know it's overwhelming, I know it is, but listen, we can read big books. You guys, if you've been to college, you've, been to, you've read big books. You can't be scared of the scriptures. I know the book of Leviticus is scary. It is, it's just kind of mindless at times. It just seems to wander this way and that way about all these laws and confusion. But there's a beauty, even to the book of Leviticus, that I want to call you guys to. We are continuing to roll more and more things out here at KPC since I've been here. We're doing them slowly and steadily and intentionally, and I'm calling you guys to step into growing your faith, okay? Sunday morning is great, and you get to experience the Lord here and you worship with the body, but there's so much more to our faith, guys. There's so much more, and I want to call you into that. I don't want what happened 500 years ago to fall on deaf ears today in 2017. So now I'd like to close our service down with a moment of pastoral privilege, if I could, and then we're going to all stand together and sing the doxology. That'll be kind of fun, right? Fun to sing the doxology. Here's the thing. Over the last week, a staff member told me that they, along with a couple other people, were put off by the way I spoke about the community harvest party last week during the worship services. I was told they felt like I was guilt-tripping people into coming. And I want you to know that I've been grieved by that for two reasons. 
I would never in my wildest imagination ever intend to do such a thing. I don't believe in manipulating people or trying to force them into anything. And the fact that people, some people perceive that I was doing that has really broken my heart. And secondly, as an ordained pastor and teaching elder called to serve and lead in a local church of Jesus Christ, the biblical standard from 1 Timothy 3 is that I be above reproach. So knowing that Joe's prophetic word was going to be shared this week, I believe it's appropriate for me to ask you for your forgiveness as a church. And I believe it's appropriate to do so in front of the church because of the words I spoke last week were in front of the church. And so in my attempt to call you forward into ministry and outreach to our community this Tuesday night at the community harvest party from 6 to 8, I left some people feeling that they were being guilted into coming. And I want you to understand that I'm not, I'm not defending myself here. I'm not evaluating whether they're right or I'm right. Because even one person walking away feeling that I did that last week is too many. Because every person matters to me. And so I want you to know that I'm sorry to anyone in the room who felt that way because of what I said and the way I said it. Um, and so I do ask that you would forgive me as a church. So if that's not you, if you don't have an issue of forgiveness, well, that's okay. But there are some. And I just want you guys to know, if that's you, I am sorry. And I'll try to be more careful with the way I say things in the future. But I'd like to, at the same time, model for you what forgiveness, repentance, and these types of things are. Because I don't want Joe's word to go in vain. We as a church need to step into forgiveness and repentance and not make it this thing that we are embarrassed to do, although it's not easy, uh, because if we're going to work towards unity, then it begins with us, and it begins with us and the leadership as well. And so as we close down the service, I want to call the altar ministers forward. And we're going to open this up. Again, priesthood of the believer is the fact that we have altar ministers that are lay people that can pray with you. Welcome to the Reformation every Sunday. And so we're going to do that. If uh, anyone that's here is an altar minister, come on up. And lastly, last week we did have that note on cancer. And so we want you to know that uh, that is an ongoing invitation. If you or someone you know is struggling with cancer and you want to pray with somebody about that, please come up to the altar ministers and let us pray with you. If it's any other thing on your heart, anything you want to rejoice about, let's not forget to rejoice too. If there's something you want to just be joyful about with somebody, let's step into those moments as well. So that's open for you. Please stand with me. Let's sing the doxology. It was published almost 200 years after the Reformation in 1709, written by an Anglican bishop named Thomas Ken. And for the last 300 years, it has been sung or said uh, all throughout the world uh, on most Sundays. And so we're going to sing this together. The words are on the screen. I'll just lead us in it. We're just having an acapella Sunday, it seems like. So here we go. We're going to go. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.
beautiful. Go in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.